Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Lucia Rubinelli, a research fellow in the history of political thought at the University of Cambridge. Professor Rubinelli's forthcoming book, Constituent Power, a History, Cambridge University Press 2020, is the latest title in the well-regarded series ideas and context. Her book offers a history of the language of constituent power in relation to the ideas of national and popular sovereignty. Beginning with a primary focus on how the French political writer Sayez during the French Revolution first theorized the concept of constituent power and how later political theorists both interpreted and reinterpreted his ideas in their own writing, from relatively unknown French jurists of the 19th century to more familiar figures in the field, such as Carl Schmidt and Hannah Arendt. The book is engaging on a number of levels, starting with Professor Rubinelli's choice of historical narratives, contextualizing five key moments of the reinterpretation of Thais's concept of constituent power from the French Revolution to the modern era and the writing of Arendt. Uh, readers will appreciate the relevance of her research to the fields of history, politics, political philosophy, and constitutional theory. And while Sayez and the French Revolution represent the initial key moment, central to her story is the controversial German jurist and political theorist Carl Schmidt. This book's writing flows well, and its arguments are well-researched, highly recommended. Professor Rubinelli, Lucia, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. You talk about the idea of, hey, this is about the language of constituent power. It's, it's not so much about you explaining a concept or an idea. Could you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Uh, yes. So um, the starting point of the book, as you as you rightly mentioned, is that this is this book is supposed to reconstruct the history of the language as opposed to the idea um, of constituent power. And of course, there are many different there are many possible ways of explaining the difference between an idea and the language. And but but the, re, the the way in which I explain the difference in the, the way in which I make sense of this difference in the book is to say that an idea is a specific meaning attributed to a language, right? So when you say so when, for example, contemporary uh, my colleagues or contemporary scholars write about constituent power, they very often say they very often take constituent power to be an idea, which means that they attribute a specific meaning to constituent power. 
So, for example, for some of them, that might mean direct democracy, the power that the people have to directly influence the process of lawmaking. So when I, what I mean by the idea of constituent power is a specific way of interpreting the, the notion of constituent power, the idea of attributing a specific meaning to these words. So, of course, if you do a history of the idea, then what you tend to do is a genealogy. Or in other words, you start by saying, look, this is what I mean by constituent power. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look back in, at history and find who else thought about constituent power in these ways and how the meaning evolved over time. So in other words, there is a continuity in the meaning that is associated to the words constituent power that is then traced back into history. It's a... It, it, if you want, it is a history in which each step confirms or each step part, builds up the meaning to arrive at the meaning we mean now. Now, what I want to do and what I do in the book is the opposite. So I do not start from a specific meaning attributed to the language of constituent power. Uh, I do not say that constituent power means direct democracy. I do not say that constituent power means plebiscitary leadership. I, I say, I, I say, I basically, I say nothing about constituent power in terms of its meaning, but that it is a way of thinking about what it means that power in modern politics belongs to the people. And instead, what I do is I look at occurrences of the words constituent power. So I've done a lot of research into a sort of almost linguistic research. I've been, look, I've been looking for uh, instances in which the words, the terms constituent power in English, uh, French, German, and Italian have been used. And then once I've found um, these words coming up again and again in different in given contexts, I've delved into this material to try and reconstruct what given thinkers meant at different times when using the words constituent power. So the reason why I say what I do is a, hist is a history of the language and not a history of the idea is um, that I'm not interested in retracing the coherence of a given meaning of constituent power over time, but on the contrary, I'm interested in tracing the variety of meanings that have been attributed to the language of constituent power over time. So again, if to go back to what I was saying earlier, if the history of the idea of constituent power is normally genealogical, or in other words, it's linear because it traces different uh, times and contexts in which the same the, the same meaning has been attributed to the to constituent power. My history is much more uh, is less linear. Let's say it's more it, it it's more interested in moments of rupture when the meaning has changed rather than in moments in linear moments when the the meaning remained the same. Is that how you got started on the project itself? I mean, I think our listeners would be interested. Could you mention a linguistic focus? But but you're also a political theorist. What what was your um, what, what brought you to the project? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, and one I'm I'm afraid I don't have a clear answer to, as I guess often happens when one writes books. Uh, there are just so many motivations behind it. But I guess uh, mine can be summarized in two types of motivation. So one is almost biographical. Uh, so when I did my first degree, which was in Italy, um, I wrote about how the Italian founding fathers uh, wrote, I wrote about the process through which the Italian founding fathers wrote the Republican Constitution of Italy that came into force in 1947. So I, I somehow got hooked by the idea of how words 
were used to decide about the normative structure of the Italian Republican state. So the, from and, and I was 21 then, so from very early on, I would say I, I've had an interest in how in in the role of words and in the and especially variety of meanings that can be attributed to words. And then that interest stayed with me later on, uh, and especially when I did my second year of master's in Paris, uh, where I met uh, a person who was very important in my intellectual development, Professor Pasquino, who, was a, who is a world expert on the political thought of the Abbé Sieyès, who, as you mentioned earlier, is one of the key figures of my book. And so he got me started in thinking about CIS. And of course, CIS is the first person who actually uses the words constituent power. There are a few, there are a couple of instances in English, one in English and one in Latin before, but they, are, they seem to be only mostly references in passing. They're not part of a theory. So then I started working on CIS. And from then on, uh, a word basically opened to me. Uh, so this is, if you want, the biographical story my, of my personal relationship with the idea of constituent power. But then there is also, I guess, an intellectual justification for the, the reason why I chose this topic and this approach, which is that more than anything, I'm interested in politics. So of course, as you, as you rightly pointed out, I'm a political theorist, so my, my job is to teach theory. But as many others in Cambridge, I really think of myself as somebody who's interested in politics and whose specific interest in politics is filtered through ideas and theory. And the reason why this is relevant to the book is that by looking at moments of rupture, so when the meaning of constituent power has been challenged and redefined and misinterpreted, so by looking at what I'm really looking at is at political conflict. All of the, mo- all the five key moments that I discuss in the book are moments in which there has been huge political conflict and in which ideas had to be redefined and languages acquired new meaning. So again, looking at how at the processes of negoti- and negotiations through which these concepts acquire new meaning, it's like looking at the conflict uh, or the negotiation between different political viewpoints, between different preferences, different interests, different visions of the world. I prefer that approach to an approach that looks at ruptures rather than an approach that looks at continuity because I'm more interested in, again, political conflict and political contestation. Uh, rather than in nicely crafted, uh, coherent and consistent uh, theories. Well, hey, I think that's that's what makes the book interesting. And hey, if we were to start out, you know, so you divide the book into those five key moments, even though I mentioned Carl Schmitt as mm-hmm. um, be, being kind of central, but but really it starts with Sayez and and the and the French Revolution. Yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, the reason why I started with CS is because he really is the first thinker who writes a theory of constituent power. Uh, now, again, as I said, the association of words, constituent power, where it came up in Latin a couple of times before, but just they seem to be only references in passing. While CS has a, like, he develops a fully fledged theory of what he calls the pouvoir constituent. And of course, he's a very interesting figure because he is, so he, he was a priest who became a priest not because of any vocation, but just because he was the second son of a not too wealthy family in the south of France. And so he had to, he could not inherit any of the family wealth. So he had to go to 
the religious profession, so to say. So, and then he, because of his religious studies, he moved to Paris. And at, it is at this point that he starts writing a series of pamphlets that then become very famous in just before the revolution, so in 1788 and 1789. And the most famous pamphlet is this pamphlet called What is the Third Estate? In, Fran in French is Qu'est-ce que le tiers état? In which he, in, in less than 100 pages, uh, he basically calls for the revolution. The Third Estate, it should be said, meant the, all the uh, population of France that were not the clergy or the, arist the aristocracy. So he starts with these three questions. The first is, uh, who is the Third Estate? And the answer is everything. Uh, what is the third estate? And the answer is nothing because they had no political rights. And the third question is, what does it want to become? And the, the answer is everything. So that's really quite an inflammatory pamphlet um, that really kicks off the revolution through a demand of political rights for the productive part of society, which is which was at the time more than 90% of the French population, of course. So he's interesting because he starts the revolution. So he has this very important role in the beginning of the revolution. But then once the revolution gets started, he's also very careful in controlling its direction and trying to close it down as soon as possible. As they, they used to say at the time, and they still say in French, it's the idea of terminer la révolution. So trying to, to stop it, basically. So he has this, this sort of dual role to play. He starts it, but then he tries to, to stop it too. And of course, the idea of constituent power reflects this double role that he has himself played. So he used the idea of constituent power to say that it is the French citizens in their entirety, it is the nation that should decide, that, that should be the, the, the bearer of political power. So... Constituent power for CS meant that the nation was the origins of all political power and that all political power was legitimate only because created and authorized by the nation. Yet at the same time, the idea of constituent power is also used by CS as part of wider attempt to terminate the revolution and to close it down, into to, to stop it through the creation of a constitutional text. So again, his argument is that the constituent power is the power that belongs to the nation to create a state, a new constitution. But then once the new constitution is created, the people, the nation, the, the constituent power should retreat, should disappear. And what le what's left is uh, the constituted power. So it's the powers that have been created and that are, to simplify, the representative power. So Again, a parliament, a constitutional court, which is something that he sort of develops later on in the course of the revolution. But really the idea is that once the people create um, a new state, then their role is, is fulfilled and they should retreat and should left the day-to-day -day running of politics to representatives who, as CS says, are the experts in the field of politics. So again... As much as his biography, his life, also this idea of constituent power, as he theorized it, reflects this tension. On the one hand, it's really democratic because it's a cry for the affirmation of the principle of popular power. But on the other hand, it's also meant to restrain the exercise of power by the people by giving it, uh, by giving its exercise to experts. So you set things up with Sayez and the and the French Revolution. There, um, I guess before we leave that, you say something about whether or not the, the French Revolution was successful in the eyes of other commentators. 
And mm -hmm. the idea is, is that if they'd have listened to Sayez instead of Rousseau, things might have been better. That's what C.S. himself said about him. <laughs> uh, he was known for being very modest. Uh, but yes, so, uh, no, you're right. And that's something I, I forgot to mention, of course. Um, so a big part of what interests me about C.S. on constituent power is that he really pitches the idea of constituent power as an alternative way of thinking about what popular power means and what it implies in institutional terms to other ideas that were around at the time. And the other ideas that were around at the time uh, were variations on the theme of sovereignty. So CS uh, criticized the theorists of national sovereignty uh, for reasons that have to do with the idea that um, they theorized uh, the, the, the sovereignty of the nation as belonging only to the representatives and not giving any actual power to the people, to the citizens. And that's something he, something he did not like. But possibly more to the point of your question, he uh, saw constituent power as an alternative to the idea of popular sovereignty, which was an idea championed by the Jacobins, by uh, Robespierre. And the inspiration behind this way of thinking about popular power through the language of popular sovereignty was, of course, Rousseau. Now, I'm not sure Rousseau would be very happy of how he was used during the revolution. Um, so I'm not really sure you can say that popular sovereignty as understood by the Jacobins is what Rousseau meant. I, I actually don't think that's the case. But it is interesting that the Jacobins, so Robespierre himself, claimed to be the interpreters and the heirs of Rousseau. They claimed to be realizing what Rousseau uh, meant and what Rousseau wanted. And uh, that meant um, the creation of a system that was, at least in its first Pro, in their first projects, then the Jacobins' ideas changed over time. But in the first version that lasted for the first year and a half of the revolution, what Robespierre and the other and his colleagues had in mind was a system of popular power where the people actually exercised power almost always directly. So they had representatives, but these were delegates. They were bound by an imperative mandate, so they had no freedom of choice in the assembly. They would only have to vote on the instructions given by their uh, constituency, and the constituencies would very often vote on law, on yes, on on uh, proposals and laws uh, via referendum. So it was really a system of semi-direct democracy, and this system got associated to the language of popular sovereignty. And so CAS came up with after after the Jacobin terror, uh, CAS came up with the idea that. Um, had they listened to him and had they used the idea of constituent power instead of sovereignty, they would have the revolution would have had a different uh, course and uh, less blood would have been spilled. So yes, yes, was very modest in that, and he thought that he had the right uh, way that he he saw the future of if you want democratic politics, even though he wouldn't call it democratic politics, but of he had the right interpretation of modern politics, while the Jacobins were too inspired by Rousseau and got it wrong. Uh, the Jacobin terror. You know, you one of the motifs I think that that you carry on or through throughout the book and with your five moments there is a little bit along those lines, though, that ha how things get misread or misinterpreted. So Sayez sets the the bar with his political writing and theorizing, and then you introduce in the next chapter you move on to the nineteenth century. French politics and, and some jurists there. Uh, what, what's the reinterpretation that goes on there? So, as I said, CS sets the bar 
Uh, and since he writes on constituent power, then all subsequent theorists of constituent power, they all refer back to CAS. So there's no theorist of constituent power who doesn't have to deal with the presence of CAS somehow. So one could read all subsequent theories and all the, the, the subsequent four chapters in my book as engaging with uh, CAS. Uh, now, the second moment, as you, as you mentioned earlier, mostly discusses uh, ju French jurists uh, and politicians who are relatively unknown and discusses their work throughout uh, basically the 19th century. So I pick the Restoration, the July Monarchy, uh, the Second Republic, so 1848, and then I trace the consequences of the theories of constituent power developed in these three moments into the rest of the 19th century. Um, and the story here is that constituent power remains a way of thinking about what popular power in a modern state means, in the sense that all the jurists I look at, so people like Langevinet, uh, La Ferrière, Cormena, uh, uh, La Boulet, uh, they all use constituent power to say that it is for the citizens to decide on, a cons on the constitution. So whenever in all these moments uh, a new constitution is written and they always claim that it should be the people who either write it or authorize it by a referendum. Interestingly, though, um, this, uh, this use of constituent power that really goes back to CS because they invoke the authority of CS time and again is used both to limit, it is used also to limit the power of um, the king. So during the Restoration and the July monarchy, of course, these were monarchical regimes. And the jurists who used it of constituent power, they use it to say, well, look, yes, you might be king, but your power is not absolute anymore because you don't have the constituent power. The constituent power belongs to the people. So what they do is they contrast the king's claim to sovereignty with the popular claim to constituent power. So really, constituent power serves to say that it is the, pe the people are the source of authority, the source of legitimacy and the source of power in France, even though it's a monarchical regime. And then later on, in, when the Second Republic is uh, created in 1848, the same argument applies to say that, yes, the people have the are the source of power, but again, this even the power of the people themselves should be limited to the respect of the constitution. So again, constituent power is used in very much in a way that was similar to how CES used it, but in a different context. So it was used to oppose monarchical power and then excesses of revolutionary power um, uh, from the people in 1848. And interestingly, um, that's another difference from CES. The idea of constituent power loses some of its opposition to the idea of sovereignty. So for these 19th century French jurists, constituent power can be used alongside the idea of sovereignty because the two mean different things. So there's no longer competition between the two ideas, but there's some sort of, uh, they, they have some sort of complementarity. So sovereignty is uh, the power that the king has, but it is a limited power. The uh, unlimited power is the constituent power of the people that is only exercised to authorize constitutions. So there are, uh, there, you can clearly see the presence of CAS in the thought of these 19th century jurists, yet at the same time, you can also see how this idea, CAS's idea, is molded and reinterpreted to serve different political circumstances. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier. These are very turbulent times. There's basically a change of regime every 15 years. So 
France writes an incredible number of constitutions in the 19th century. So you see the idea being adapted to um, fit with the circumstances. So the idea of the book series, even ideas in context, really does fit your motif overall. Uh, well, yes, yes, I, I, I hope so. Um, again, the idea of the, the the book series, as you mentioned, is a uh, was created as a way of thinking about uh, philo- philosophical ideas, um, mostly philosophical ideas, uh, also many political ideas, but to think about them not in the abstract, so not investigating these ideas in terms of, uh, for example, normative philosophy or analytical philosophy, but rather to see how they actually serve, what interests they serve, how do they fit within a broader context. So try to bring them back to life through understanding the, the basically the, the, the social and political life they had at any given time. And that's what I try to do, especially in this second chapter of the, of the book, yes. You set up the say, you set up say as, um, you set up uh, a reinterpretation and this complementarity between popular power and sovereignty with, with your second key moment. And then um, kind of as, as I was saying at the beginning, and, and I, I hope you don't disagree with it, but that Carl Schmidt is kind of a, a central um, character here. And <laughs> interestingly, he's the third chapter kind of right in the middle there. Yes, no, absolutely, and there you really touch on something. So I have, I have to confess that I, I have an obsession for symmetry, um, and of course, it's no coincidence that Schmidt is the only chapter that doesn't have a correspondence. Um, in a sense, it's it's the pivot, as you say, right? So he's in the middle, and then there are two chapters before him and two chapters after him, and he is fundamental. Um, not just because I'm obsessed with symmetry, but also for intellectual and historical reasons. So. So what, one reason why he's central is because uh, he does something completely new with the idea of constituent power. So instead of but instead of using it as an alternative to ideas of sovereignty or in opposition to ideas of sovereignty or trying to distinguish it from the idea of sovereignty, he basically uses it to substantiate his own very peculiar uh, understanding of sovereignty. Um, so throughout the chapter, I try to explain how, for him, constituent power is the essence of sovereignty in democratic states. And, and, and this is important because it allows him to say that in a democracy, if you really care about sovereignty, and if you believe that sovereignty is the same as constituent power, then you cannot be satisfied with parliamentary democracy, which has to do with liberalism. And as many people, I'm sure, know that That's something he doesn't like. On the contrary, he despises. At the same time, you cannot be satisfied with direct democracy either, because that doesn't fit the bill of modern politics. It's just too much for modern politics. On the contrary, if you think about about the essence of modern politics as sovereignty as constituent power, then what you get is plebiscitary leadership, which basically means a form for him, a form of representation of the people through the figure of the leader. And now this is a very important turning point into in, in, in my in my book because of course it's the first time in which we see the idea of constituent power that was born as again a democratic idea being used to justify dictatorship. And this is not just a theoretical possibility, it's something that Schmidt uses to actually justify um, the seizure of power by Hitler. Uh, so both 
in terms of a philosophical history and in terms of a political history, this is a very important moment because the idea has an impact uh, in real world politics that is that somehow uh, breaks from the impact the idea had in the previous 150 years. So that's one reason why Schmidt is central. Then the second reason why he is central is because he extensively reads CES and he writes extensively about CES and by and he completely misinterprets CES. Now, this is <laughs> Schmidt misinterprets many many thinkers so it was somehow of a, a somehow a, a habit he had of reading what he wanted to read into previous yeah. thinkers um and that's well known um but differently from other thinkers such as Hobbes or Rousseau for whom later historians have pointed out all the failures in Schmidt's interpretation for CES nobody really bothered to point out that Schmidt is not really like what Schmidt Schmidt says about CS is not what CS said. There's a gulf in between the two. And so what happens is that after the first after Schmidt's first writings on CS, what you get is that the mainstream interpretation of CS later on in the German but also um, Anglophone world and Italian world too, less so in France, is Schmittian. So people start reading CS through the lenses offered by Schmidt. So that completely flips it completely changes, it turns upside down the story about CS, which becomes a story of cumulative misunderstandings and misinterpretations, um, which of course is troubling if one cares about um, intellectual history and the correctness of, you know, interpretative correctness. But it's also extremely interested if one is interested in politics, uh, because there's much going on that is politically relevant in this series of misinterpretation and uh, that's what I tried to uh, explore in the last two chapters in the remaining chapters of the book is, is there a way around this misinterpretation thing or the misreading um, is well obviously it's it's useful to someone like Schmidt for his purposes he I guess later was unrepentant about his role for that that's another issue altogether mm-hmm. but um, this thing with misreading and misinterpretation is, I, I don't want to like uh, flush that out too much, but on the other hand, that's part of the ideas in context thing that um, the context or the becomes kind of a contingency uh, of yes. the moment. No, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that that's what makes studying the context interesting because when you look at the contingency, then what you're basically looking at is politics. So you're looking at wh- why is it that Schmidt decides to... Schmidt knew and studied the French Revolution. So why is it that he decides to use CAS instead of um, Robespierre? Had he chosen Robespierre or Condorcet, for example, maybe things would have gone differently, right? So there are, there are yes, there, are absolute, there is a lot of emphasis on, on contingencies here. Uh, and again, the reason why I chose to do a history of the language, so without giving a without assuming a meaning to constituent power, is precisely because I wanted to track these contingencies. And then these contingencies play out also later, right? Because um, in the fourth chapter, for example, I discuss how uh, three jurists, Ernst Wolfgang Böckenförde in Germany, Costantino Mortati in Italy, and Georges Fidel in France, how they worked on German, Italian, French constitutions, post-war constitutions respectively, by 
doing again a weird mix of CS interpreted through Schmidt plus applied to post-war European politics. And if you shake up all these elements, what you get at the end is, a, is again a completely different story that is that has nothing to do with what CAS, or that has little to do with what CAS wanted to do, has little to do with what Schmidt wanted to do, but is very responsive and very appropriate to the political circumstances of post-war Italian poli- uh, European politics, which again meant uh, mostly trying to give recognize that the source of all political legitimacy lies with the people, but trying to avoid, while trying on the one end to avoid the degenerations of popular power that led to fascism and Nazism, so the sort of plebiscitary leadership that Schmidt wanted, and at the same time uh, trying to carve out spaces for popular participation in, in constitutional politics. So, for example, advancing arguments in favor of some cases, some uses of the referendum, advancing arguments for the idea of semi-direct democracy in at the local level, um, of political appointment of judges. So th- th- there's again in the fourth chapter, you take the elements of you see the elements of the previous three chapters uh, play out in a different way, in a different context. Yeah, no, interesting. I think uh, how you tie in the institutions, right? Well, how about that, the, uh, talking about the constitutional courts and doesn't that really begin about uh, post-World War II period or? Yes, no, I think the story of, of constitutional courts starts when the story of constituent power starts, in fact. And uh, as I mentioned passingly, um, there is a lot of work being done at the moment um, on whether T.S. was actually the first theorist of a constitutional court because he, mm-hmm. um, towards the end of the revolution, he theorized uh, the jury constitutionnaire, which, again, it's constitutional jury, which is not, it's not exactly a constitutional court. There are way too many people in there. And, um, it, yeah, it, it's not exactly a constitutional court. But third, it is clear that it had a function of checking on whether new laws were consistent with the constitution. And this then plays out later on. So it becomes very important in the immediate aftermath of the war and then later on, of course, with uh, Arendt as well. So, so yes, you're right. I think another way of telling the story that my book is trying to tell is uh, to say that by looking at how the idea of constituent power, by, dif- by looking at how different meanings have been attributed to the language of constituent power, what I try to look at is also the different institutions that have been justified by appeal to constituent power. And in the same way as the meaning of constituent power changed in these five moments, so the institutions that it justified changed in these five moments. Uh, so in the first two moments, so CS and then the 19th century in France, what you have is a series of institutions that had to do with representative politics, so justifications of political representation, of expertise in politics, of uh, checks on um, proto-constitutional checks, uh, etc., that then are completely overturned by Schmidt, who on the contrary uses constituent power to justify plebiscitary leadership, so basically plebiscites, uh, and the direct election of the president against uh, the role of parliament, against the role of normal representatives, against the role of constitutional courts. Interestingly and passingly, Schmidt attributes the role of, he argues that the guardian of the constitution, which is normally the role that we assign to a constitutional court, should be with the president, so not with judges, but with the president. And then later on in the last 
two chapters, you see how constituent power has been used to justify um, courts, but also, as I was mentioning earlier, instances of direct or semi-direct democracy, so uh, mini-publics, councils in the case of Arendt, um, but also in the case of Georges Vedel in France, or in the case of Mortati in Italy, for example, case, uh, instances of um, internal direct democracy within the par- within parties and party politics. So there, really, the idea of constituent power is an idea, is, is a the language of constituent power, whenever associated to a given definition, has been used to experiment with the institutional possibilities of democratic politics. And in the book, I'm very interested in tracing what these experiments consisted in. Because in the end, I mean, that's the key concept, the, the principle of popular power. Um, yep. you, you go on then, so you've got your fourth key moment, and we're, we're talking about the theorists, the, the post-World War II mm-hmm. uh, theorists, and then, hey, and then you move on to talk about Arendt, and that is an interesting chapter in itself, uh, because um, she's an interesting character. Theorist uh, would be uh, more appropriate. She used sovereignty and um, the notion of constituent power uh, in, in her own way as well. Yes, absolutely. So um, she is very interesting because she basically completely flips what CS was doing. So again, she get, she arrives at the idea of constituent power by reading Schmidt mostly. She what she does is she takes CS's opposition between sovereignty and constituent power and reproduces it in her own theory. So she she also believes, like CS did, that constituent power is the opposite of sovereignty. You cannot have both. Constituent power is an alter a way of thinking about the power of the people that is alternative and opposite to sovereignty. However, differently, she she she, the meaning she attributes to sovereignty and constituent power respectively is the opposite of the meaning that uh, CS attributed to these ideas. So for her, sovereignty is um, what Schmidt means, the, the, the concentration of power in the hands of, of the representative of the nation. And she, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure listeners are familiar with all of her work in which, especially in the origins of totalitarianism, where she explains that the very idea of sovereignty is behind the degeneration of democratic politics that took place um, during uh, World War II. So again, um, the, the the war itself and Nazism and fascism, explicit more even more so, are the result of a way of thinking about politics through the idea of national sovereignty. So for her, the idea of sovereignty is to to be completely rejected as embodying the the, 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 uni- the unity of the nation. Well, on the contrary, what she sees in constituent power is the plurality of politics, the pluralism of politics, right? So if sovereignty is unitary, constituent power is plural. And she believes that constituent power is a better foundation for thinking about democratic politics because it allows for action, for human action and for human plurality. And that comes with a series of institutions that are rather different from the ones that CAS had in mind. And most famously, it comes with council democracy. And that's why I say that she completely flips CAS on his head, because although she takes from CAS the opposition between constituent power and sovereignty, she believes that she, she, what she means by constituent power is basically direct democracy. 
while CES used constituent power to justify the role of representatives in national parliaments. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier about Schmidt being the, the person who somehow created a big misunderstanding about CES, she, she reads CES as being proto-Schmittian somehow, as being the theorist of the sovereignty of the nation, as opposed as being the theorist of constituent power. And that's because she reads CES through Schmidt, but also because somehow she disaggregated, she disaggregated the meaning that CS had assigned to the language of constituent power, and she said what he meant was actually sovereignty. Well, the truth yeah. of constituent mm-hmm. power is direct democracy. And, and the context is different, right? So uh, it's not necessarily a given that she's going to reinterpret or, and I want to say hijack, but that's not really the right word, take say as through the filter of Schmidt and then reappropriate it for her own purposes. In a way, it's almost, I want to say inevitable, but the ideas in context and then the contingency idea seems to be like the overriding theme in some ways. We keep seeing it over and over again. Yes, exactly. And I mean, again, no no coincidence that I mentioned World War II, right? So Arendt is, all of her thinking is mm. deeply, deeply informed by her experience of the 30s in, in, in Europe and the war and then her life, her post-war life in the US. And so, of course, these are circumstances that are so completely different from what CAS was thinking, right? CAS was writing in the midst of a revolution. So yes, I think, uh, and, and in a way, the, re- the, the fact that the circumstances are so different is both what I'm interested in and also the reason why I think that it's more interesting to look at the language as opposed to a specific meaning of constituent power. Because again, if I yeah. If I were to choose one meaning, so say Arendt's meaning for constituent power, I would basically be tracing a history of the idea of direct democracy. While by not picking up one specific meaning, but just looking at the language, what I what the book brings back to life is just how different, how differently we can think about what pop, what popular power means in different contexts. And then you can see how all these different languages and uh, intellectual references play out in, given, in, in any given context. So again, for Schmidt, CS is useful to justify Hitler. For Arendt, CS is useful to explain why, why Hitler should never happen again. It's still the same thinker. It's still the same idea. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Um, well, hey, I um, appreciate all, all the time in the, the overview. It's this really, I mean, this is something that I, I like the way you put it together and, it, and it's an interesting way to do it and as is the book series and you being part of that you know it's it's long been a popular thing as you well know to to write book reviews on on more than a single book that that have Mm -hmm. related themes and 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 these days a lot of people approach their reading i i think anyways in in kind of a similar fashion that is searching out books with with arguments that complement and challenge and and, and kind of work together in some sort of interdisciplinary, I don't know, context. And hey, do you have any recommendations? Because um, you've got a, clearly, you've got an interesting book. Hey, well, what should they be reading along with you? Uh, so I think one book that I found that came out, uh, so this, my book, I have to say, is the result of my uh, PhD, of my doctoral dissertation. And one book that I didn't have a chance to read while writing the dissertation, because it came out immediately after I defended it, was Richard Tuck's uh, new book, 
called The Slipping Sovereign, which is published, um, again, by Cambridge University Press. And I think it came out in 2016. So the interest of that book is that it is a history, more or less the same thing. So it's a history of how you think about the origins of a political constitution and what is the role that the people have in creating and deciding on their own constitution. And the focus of the book really is on... or Well, I mean, the book is... It's interesting, I think, because the book starts before mine. So it, it's a, it starts in, the, in early modern Europe and it ends with CAS and the American Revolution. So it ends where mine starts. But it, it, it takes a quite a different approach. So first, uh, it, it mostly focuses on one institution, which is the referendum. And indeed, the book has been read as a way of um, creating a, somehow a philosophical history for Brexit, or uh, at least for the idea of voting on um, uh, the Britain's membership to the European Union. So that's one interesting thing. And the other difference is that CES is the villain of the story in that book. So I really think it's a, it's an interesting read. Uh, I mean, it's a great book, and that much inspired me and inspired me when I was rewriting my book. But also, um, I think, it again, it offers a different perspective. And alternatively... Uh, I think there are two other books that um, came out also in Ideas in Context, but are already out. One is um, called Parliament, the Mirror of the Nation by Gregory Conti, who's a professor at Princeton. And the other is called Parliamentarism from Burke to Weber by William Selinger, who's a professor at University College London. Uh, and the reason why I mentioned these two books is because they both are focused on institutions. So parliamentarism is, <laughs> without any surprise, focused on the idea of parliaments and how parliaments should work. And Parliament, the Mirror of the Nation, is also, of course, reflects a lot on parliaments, but is mostly focused on the on how the, the system of proportional representation came into being in 19th century England. So one, again, deals mostly with parliamentary, the institutions of parliamentarism, the other with electoral laws. And they really find the way in which they discuss institutions and they bring back and they, by looking at institutions, they reconstruct ways of thinking about politics and about democracy and popular power. Very inspiring. Nice. Well, thanks for, for sharing those. I think that th those would be definitely complimentary. Um, hey, so uh, as a last question for you, um, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a new book. Uh, still very early phases, uh, but stages. But um, it's um, it's going to be a history of plebiscites. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, I'm interested in political institutions, and I think that by now all the listeners have understood that. But what, what I've done in constituent power in the book on constituent power is to look at one concept, one language, and reconstruct the variety of institutions that have been associated to this language. And what I want to do in this new book is the opposite. So instead of starting from an idea and looking at the institutions, start from one institution, which is the plebiscite, and reconstruct the variety of understandings of democracy and popular power that crystallized around the, the discussion of the plebiscite. And I think that's interesting because, surprisingly, the history of the plebiscite is much more complicated and complex than we assume at first. It was not just uh, Napoleon and his nephew Louis Napoleon, who used the plebiscite in the 19th century. On the contrary, the plebiscite was used to justify national independence in Europe in the 19th century, around 1848 especially. 
It was used by socialists. Now, at the moment, I'm working on a chapter on socialism. And they were all absolutely fond of the idea of using referenda and plebiscites as a way of bringing about communism and socialism. Uh, it was used, of course, by Caesarist leaders, uh, but it was also used uh, as a as part of a liberal discourse about checks and balances, as well as a way of thinking about ratifying constitutions. So I think it. I, I hope that much can be gained in terms of our understanding of the history of democracy by looking at how this spe- very specific institution uh, was theorized in the 19th and early 20th century. That sounds good. And look forward to uh, your next book. Professor Rubinelli, uh, Lucia, uh, thanks again uh, for your time and congratulations on, on your interesting new book, Constituent Power, a History, uh, soon to be out from Cambridge University Press. Thanks again. Thank you very much.